This is episode 22 of Functional First Podcast. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today we're in Australia traveling with the pain revolution. We're joined by three pain experts, Dr. David Butler, Dr. Tasha Stanton, and Professor Lorimer Mosley, who will be answering your submitted questions. Hello there. Diraj um, Singh Rana asks a, a fundamental question, what is pain? Instead of going through all these definitions that have been put out there, why not try something which is really simple and clinical? We will have pain when our brains weigh the world, everything going on outside and inside, and makes a credible judgment that there's more danger than safety. Equally, we will not have pain when our brains weigh the world and judge that there's more safety in there than danger. Great question, but the key thing is, danger and safety hides in hard to find places. And when you can grasp how important context is and how important distributed processing is, you'll realize that many, many, many things out there can have an influence on pain, both centered up and down. There's some great questions here. What do you say to a patient who says, so it's just in my head? Well, I've got to tell you, sometimes if your clinical interaction skills are good enough and powerful enough, you can say, right on, you've got it. But of course, it's much bigger than that. I would say, no, it's never just in your head. It's in your body. It's in your life. And yeah, the brain may well be boss, but it's much, much, much bigger than in your head. And I think I'd probably apologize if some health professional out there has told a patient, it's just all in your head. I'd apologize on behalf of the health professions for being a little bit, not just a little bit, out of date. Here's a great question. How can we change people's general knowledge before they become patients about pain and pain management? Look, that's a really, really good question. And if I reflect on my clinical life, I would have to say that the ideal way to deal with this massive expensive and horrible epidemic in society is to preempt it and that means going into schools going into sporting clubs going to parents and teaching them about pain before they get a problem you know if somebody was was doing some research out there i reckon you could go to a sporting club and go in and give maybe uh, two by 20 minutes with a bit of a follow-up and a few multimedia links you could go in and uh, and teach these people about pain and I reckon there'd be far less issues with with return to field or pain problems later but research has to go there yet but yes let's go young let's teach it in the schools and the sporting clubs we have a great question here on what metaphors and analogies do you use with your patients and the answer is I don't think I use anything else but I, I, I use metaphor and analogy all the time and um, Part of this is, is also, in a diagnostic sense, looking for the kind of metaphors patients are using and making a judgment on whether we need to try and, and, and shift that. And a couple of key examples there is when somebody has uses metaphors that suggest invasion of the body. It's like a knife in me. Something's degenerated in, in, uh, inside. It's burning inside. We try and, uh, and give them alternative language. Other key metaphors we use are when people use language to try and grasp a chronic pain state that they don't have language for. So we see things like, uh, it comes out of the blue, I'm falling apart at the seams, I'm feeling fragile. 
of today. And if you look at those three examples, the people are trying to link pain to something objective, fragile to glass, blue to the sky, seams to clothing. These people are really asking for, um, for some form of uh, grounding of their particular problem. Yeah, so yes, I use them all the time, develop them all the time, uh, try to get a, a store of metaphors that I can use in the clinic all the time. Simply said, I have a belief that offering a patient optimal linguistic expression is as important as helping them to optimal motor expression. Yeah, there's a great question um, because it relates to the, to the practical applications of, of education as an interventional therapy. And, and the question is, how much is it possible to, to deliver in a 20-minute educational um, intervention? And the answer is heaps. Hardly a health professional out there is offering patients, clients, a 20-minute intervention. But you could prioritise it. And critically, it's to make an assessment of that person's particular needs. It's not delivering education as just the same story to everybody. It's going in, making it an interactive thing with patients, picking and identifying what you believe, what they believe are the critical target concepts that need addressing. So yes, you can do it. And just one other comment, if you could follow it up with just one contact after, a phone call, an email, what you delivered will be far more powered up. So go for it. We're also asked what are some of the great advances in pain sciences now that will have an impact in the future? Well, for me, it comes down to one major thing, and this comes from the many domains of pain sciences. It's for me now to be confident to say to a patient or a client that it's not just all about management, that treatment is on the cards and that cure is on the cards for some. I'm not saying it's easy, it can be bloody hard, but for me to be able to say that, that comes from a knowledge of basic sciences, of bioplasticity, but increasingly now 20 plus well done randomized clinical trials that show that effective education combined with quality movement change can make a huge difference. So question from um, Functional Media. What is one piece of advice you would give to someone suffering from persistent pain? I think I probably have a couple pieces of advice I'd like to give, but I think if I had to choose one, I would probably say, find a clinician that listens. Find a clinician that is happy to hear your whole story and is happy to explore some of the history that you've had and can give you some help in, I guess, addressing different situations and how you might be able to cope in those situations. Because I think one of the hardest things is when you actually have chronic pain is getting someone that is helping you to explore ways that you might be able to go forward and ways you might be able to cope in your individual situation. And if you can't find that person, ask around as much as you can. The next question is from um, Get PT First, and it says, um, it's a bit longer one. Those of us in the profession like to dig deep in the science and research, but what the overall public is interested in is far more practical. What can we do? Data alone hasn't convinced many. How can we better explain what's going on in a simple and understandable way? Well, first of all, um, get PT first. I think you hit the nail straight on the head in the fact that oftentimes we have good evidence in terms of data and science for things, but it doesn't get taken up in a practical manner or in clinical practice. And so I think one of the hardest things from that is that 
In order to translate, I think, some of our science, we have to think of ways that we can actually create simple explanations for people, but also what could be quite powerful is creating metaphors so that they understand that what we're doing is trying to treat something different. And I think with, when we look at some of the pain science work, there has been a fair bit of attempt to try to um, make and use metaphors to help convey different concepts. So I, I guess I would say one example might be when patients are experiencing pain with certain things and they don't quite understand why, we might talk about, well, it wouldn't make very much sense. Let's say pain is like an alarm system. So if the alarm system is set way too high, tiny little things will activate it and it will go off. But the trouble isn't with how the alarm system is in the car. It's actually with the sensitivity of the alarm system itself. And that's similar to maybe what's going on in, in this person that has chronic back pain. It's not the problem of the back, to, back itself, but it's a problem with the sensitivity of that system. And I think if we can take these messages and actually go to the public with them, that actually becomes a way where we can go from the, the ground up. Because what we found is actually going and trying to implement changes in practice as we go from the top down, it doesn't always work. But if the patients are asking for it and want it, that's oftentimes how things can change. There's another question, and this is, what are some exciting new advances in pain science that you think will impact clinical practice in the near future? In the near future, yeah, that gets a bit harder. <laughs> what I think probably will be some of the biggest, biggest differences is some of the information actually that is coming from the learning field. And so how we associate things and how we learn that some things are dangerous and how we learn that some things are safe. Because right now, for example, when we look at pain education, we're trying to, on a cognitive level, change those danger and safety understandings. But if we start to understand a bit better how we might be able to extinguish some of these pairings of danger and safety, or let's say movement and danger in patients that do have pain, then that actually opens up a whole new realm. And I guess where I think I get excited is if at a cognitive level, we can actually work with patients to understand that, you know what, this is what pain's all about. When you feel pain when you're doing movement, it actually isn't that you're damaging something further. What it actually is, is that your system is sensitive and you're, it's protecting you. And if they have that understanding, and then we do some of the exposure type paradigms where we get people actually doing the tasks that they were at one point scared of because of pain, I think that could be incredibly powerful. And to date, we really haven't done that. Lars Avmarie asked, what are the biggest barriers in making physio and pain management move forward? I think there's probably a couple. There's definitely a couple. I think actually one of the challenges, it's a very practical challenge. If we think of people going into a private clinic, you can only actually have them come in for so long in terms of a clinical appointment. And a lot of the things in terms of pain management, we know that explaining the neurophysiology of pain to someone takes time. We can't rush that. It's a conceptual change. It's trying to institute differences in how people understand a most basic sensation that is scary, pain. So I think almost policy changes become important so that we can actually then be able to provide those sessions for people and they're covered. They're not having to pay extra for them. I think that's a big deal. But it's also, I think, engaging the community of physiotherapists and understanding that 
actually a lot of this information can relate to the treatments that they're already using. And I think that's where various groups going forward and trying to uh, collaborate with different areas is really important. Anthony Lowe asked, how do you see the role of manual therapy in both acute and persistent pain, assuming an ethical and accurate explanation as opposed to a PSB model approach? This is a hard question because if we look to some of the clinical evidence, it suggests that oftentimes manual therapy as a single treatment may not have long-term efficacy or effectiveness in terms of positive outcomes for people. In acute pain, there's a little bit more evidence to suggest that it may be beneficial in some conditions. So for example, conditions such as chronic back pain, and we look at some of the manipulative clinical prediction rules in that area. So I think if there is evidence from larger trials to suggest that it works, then I think we're, we're quite comfortable in saying, yeah, this is great. This um, is something that showed in these people that it was good. In persistent pain, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult because it's not been shown to have long-term outcomes. I think actually how we might see it as, as a role is that we know that numerous treatments can help us feel better in the shorter term. And these things are actually really important in terms of making us feel better and making us enjoy perhaps that day more. And while you're not promising them that this one treatment is going to change nor cure them, if you're combining it as part of a multimodal treatment, then I think including it and explaining that this has been shown to have shorter term outcomes, I don't think that is a problem from an ethical standard at all. And I, I do think then that still enca uh, encapsulates an accurate explanation. So I might go to Kara Barrick-Levy who asks, what is the most effective way to implement a pain science approach in complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS, and how should medications be used during implementation? This one's a great question, and part of it is determined by the stage at which it's at. So there's some work coming out of some of the clinicians that are working in Melbourne that are trying to capture people early. So they're trying to capture them within three months after having a wrist fracture and looking at people that you know, have quite high pain levels, are quite fearful and quite anxious. And what they're showing is that actually instituting things like uh, graded motor imagery and um, actually they're looking at a sensory paradigm of that, that hopefully would be out soon, um, has been shown to be uh, in some of their pilot data to be helpful. So I think in that case, it's probably working quite hard to do your best to keep them moving while not completely flaring up what's going on in terms of pain. And that may be instituting things such as left-right judgments, um, imagining movements, and then also um, using mirror therapy. In terms of how should medications be used, I think it's probably a good idea that um, in this case, we're, we're working within teams, uh, multimodal teams, because for uh, complex regional pain syndrome, many times we're looking at um, numerous approaches. So using medications in conjunction with different um, brain-based approaches, and then with the aim to reduce pain and improve function, but then also as they're beginning to improve, reduce that medication use. In people with chronic complex regional pain syndrome, that does get to be uh, a more resistant and tougher population. And in this population, it tends to be taking a bit longer with some of the stages that we have with things like graded motor imagery. But also I think it's really critical, and probably for both populations, but particularly when they're chronic, is that having an explanation 
of pain and what we understand from modern pain neuroscience is essential because they may not understand, well, they certainly most don't understand why on earth is this pain so bad? And especially if I seem to have done such a little thing to, to hurt myself, I might have just you know bumped your hand or, or perhaps broke, broke a wrist. But I think with that, it's really important to combine those two things because what we're finding with graded motor imagery, they did a clinical audit on the data and the effectiveness of it was not as good. We didn't see as good clinical results as compared to the clinical trials that were run. And we think that part of that is actually due to differences in dosage. And because the challenges with greater motor imagery is it's a massive do dosage. It's five minutes every waking hour. And if you don't have the buy-in, then I think that's a real challenge. And I think actually educating people about pain and the neurobiology behind it helps to get that buy-in. Liz Winkler Prins asked, what can you tell us about pain thresholds? Could a pain threshold be more about coping, pain tolerance, or is there an actual inter-individual difference on a neurological level, such as our perception or even a nociceptor level? So that question combines actually quite a few different concepts. So we do know that your pain thresholds can be modulated by various things. So one example is actually even changing your own perceived size of your body. So making your hand look bigger actually increases your pain threshold. So it makes you less sensitive to that noxious stimuli. I think the second bit of the question asking between coping and pain tolerance, there's more evidence to suggest that having effective coping strategies will increase your tolerance to pain. You're better at tolerating it, but there's not very much evidence that your coping strategies will change pain thresholds. In terms of an inter-individual difference, well, we do know, for example, that there's differences in nociceptor density around our body. So different areas are more sensitive. So right within an individual, actually, you'll have differences, as we well know, in pain threshold. So it may well be that actually for different people, there's differences in the amount of nociceptors that they literally have in a given area. We do see that there's differences between uh, genders. So it tends to be that females tend to be more sensitive to noxious uh, information or input. So I think there is good evidence to suggest that there's actually inter-individual differences in pain thresholds. And it's not related to necessarily how tough you are. It's related to the, the functioning of your neurological system. Pain tolerance, I think, you may be able to make a slightly different argument in that coping strategies and your motivation to hold out can probably make more of a difference. Simon Rasmussen asked, does the health industry need to change the way it understands and treats pain? If yes, what are your suggestions? Well, my answer to that question is a resounding yes. And I think some of the way that it needs to, to really change is to move away from this solely biomechanical understanding of pain. And that's hard because that's what we've learned actually growing up is, you know, when something hurts, it's because we've injured it. And yet the vast majority of pain science knowledge and literature suggests that that's indeed not the case. There's many things that modulate and contribute to our pain experience. I think one of the things that is a really good way to look at doing this is to start to give a little bit more than just lip service to psychosocial factors. 
So we think about asking people about, you know, what is your, what is your social environment? What are your support networks? What do you feel? Do you feel anxious? It's one thing to ask people about that within kind of an objective interview, but it's another thing to actually help explain to them, look, actually, when this happens, this is the way that your system reacts. And if we give them that understanding and that knowledge, that can change the way that they react and understand their condition in the future. Because knowledge changes our perception. Like I'd give an example that, um, that you'll see in some of Explain Pain books, is that if you are home alone at night, all by yourself, and you hear a scary noise outside, something rattling, well, if you have the knowledge that you just ordered pizza, you think very differently about that noise than if you didn't, because then it might be an intruder. And it's the same way I think with people that have, have pain, is if they have an understanding that they have a dynamic bioplastic system that can change and it can turn the volume up in terms of danger detection, then they can understand why sometimes when they're in a situation where they don't maybe have enough money for bills this month, they have a kid that got in trouble at school, then it makes more sense why they might experience more pain that day because the volume knob of their system is turned up. So I think knowledge is incredibly empowering and the health industry needs to start to, to understand and promote the fact that education in and of itself is a treatment for pain. And the last question, with this biopsychosocial model and often this focus on um, psychological or social factors, where does the bio fit into all of this? Where does it actually come into play? Or do we, do we think about these things very separately? It's interesting because I actually don't think we can even separate them. Like I think sometimes separating them is part of the problem because I guess the bio underlies psycho, it underlies social. If you're feeling stressed, if you're fe feeling anxious, there are biological processes behind why you're feeling that. And then there's also biological processes that then contribute to them further. Like there was a fascinating study that was looking at if you remove afferent input from the face, so people that get Botox and then end up being unable to make like a grimace, they have been studied and shown that they can't get as angry <laughs> because you get feedback from your facial muscles of a grimace. And so I think even with things like anxiety, Oftentimes, for example, as we get anxious, as we get nervous, we're starting often to get tension in the shoulders. So then we have this biological afferent feedback that's going back and sustaining this state. And I think we also know that um, psychological, I'd say states such as anxiety or fear, change the sensitivity itself of our system, of our nociceptive system. Meaning then that actually what's going on is that the, potentially the message itself, that danger message itself that's getting up to the brain has changed. It has actually changed because what we've done is we've had the psychological state modulate our own system. And I think that's where the power of, of bioplasticity is, is actually so huge. Okay, so this question is from Carla Rousio. And uh, she asks, how do you explain pain to an uneducated patient who thinks treatment is a quick fix? Great question, Carla. My challenge is breaking down the information simply enough for such patients to understand. That's my challenge too. I think that any patient who wants a quick fix, it's difficult to present a whole new way of understanding the situation. Uh, 
I feel like the answer to that question is probably a room full of people for a couple of days. But the principles that I would apply are the same principles that we apply to anyone for whom we would like them to think differently about, about their pain. And I guess those principles are to absolutely respect the resources the patient has, to remember that they might be uneducated, but that doesn't mean that they can't learn. And the challenge that we have as deliverers of, of content in a way that actually changes knowledge and, and, and changes beliefs so I think that's what we're in. We're in the belief revision game as a way to get behavioural change. I think we need to foster our skills of articulating things clearly without judgment, uh, but also acknowledging things take time. And uh, there are a lot of principles of, of teaching things that I would apply to that, which would take us days to walk through. That's a really tough question for me to have a short answer to. Okay, so Alex Chisholm. Alex Chisholm writes, what changes do you think healthcare professionals need to institute in the treatment of acute pain in order to help prevent transition to chronic pain states? Wow, uh, I think about this a lot, Alex, and in my role at the University of South Australia, I'm chair of physiotherapy, so uh, part of my role is, is to work with the, the clinical education and the uh, lecturing teams uh, on, a, on a cognitive culture. And the thing that I'm working hard on there is to shift the idea, particularly in musculoskeletal physiotherapy, to shift the idea of us being pathology detectors and correctors to us being facilitators of recovery. And uh, I think we have a great skill set to detect when things are truly structurally out but we, I think we have to be really honest uh, in appraising the value and the validity of those tests. And I think our mindset should always be, how do I facilitate recovery rather than what can I detect that's wrong and try and correct it? And that, I think that's a subtle but a really important difference. Uh, that's how I think healthcare professionals could change to, and I guess it's almost like remembering that Healing is an irresistible force. For too long, we've just got in the way of it, I think. And learning is an irresistible force. And I think for too long, we've, we've facilitated learning of things that are not, not helpful. Okay, the next question is from someone whose tagline, or what do you call that, Corey, their, their name, is Sunda50. What is your go-to one-liner to explain central sensitization to your chronic pain patient? I don't have a go-to one-liner. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you on that. Uh, I rely on a lot of metaphors, uh, metaphors such as magnifying glass, turning up the danger message in the spinal cord, putting in 1D in the periphery, but getting 1D for danger in the periphery, but getting 4Ds for danger going to the brain. Uh, I rely a lot on metaphor and then drawing pictures, but I, I don't have a one-liner. Uh, the general concept of, of, of which central sensitization is a part is the idea of the expanding buffer. And that is a one-liner that I use a lot in all of uh, my interactions, but more importantly, that I see really good clinicians using. And remember, I'm, not a, I'm only a clinician for four hours a week. 
but in my experience of explaining pain, the idea of a buffer and the buffer getting bigger, that protective buffer getting bigger, central sensitization is one contributor to that. It's not the only contributor, but that would be the one-liner that, that keeps coming up. You've got a bigger buffer, you're overprotected. Yeah, so, and then there's a follow-up question here from Paravesh Kumar. How do you explain this on day one without losing the patient? Ah, well, I think this is not a particularly difficult concept uh, if we think about it. Uh, how do we do it without losing the, the patient? I think the, the key there is not in, in what I say. I think the key is in the engagement and, and in the, the pervasiveness of respect and trust and, and acknowledging if they're having a hard time with a concept but also finding that balance between presenting the conflict in their own idea set. So you could, for example, uh, feed back to this person. Uh, so three weeks ago when you, when you did that task, it hurt this much. And now you're saying doing less of that task hurts more. So do, do you think there's more loading on your tissues now than there were doing the same thing three weeks ago? And normally I would expect the answer of that to that to be no. So, so something's making you more protective than you were three weeks ago. Something in your system. Now that, that could easily be a change in the way the, the relay station in the spinal cord is working. So that might be an example of, of providing a little bit of conflict to the current idea set and then an, an astute, respectful uh, suggestion of an explanation for that. I hope that makes sense. Benjamin, Benjamin Butler Bonice uh, has given me the, the toughest assignment uh, so far of this week's pain revolution and has asked me to explain fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia means pain in muscles and other connective tissue. How's that? Is that? I hope that's satisfying. I don't understand fibromyalgia biology well enough to explain it, and I would argue that no one on the planet does. Uh, what we really do know about fibromyalgia is that they have a, a pattern of pain across their body, uh, that they get a lot of fatigue, they get the fibro fog, that there are changes in the profile of nociceptors in some locations, there are changes in the way they're, they're there are differences in the way their brain works in response to stimuli. They process even auditory stimuli in a different way. Look up, uh, keep, a, keep an eye out for Carolyn Berryman's work. She's doing great work in this space. The only way that I would be comfortable explaining fibromyalgia is to say fibromyalgia is a, is a persistent pain state with multiple contributions from multiple domains uh, that is well and truly overprotective. And I know that's not very satisfying, but that reflects our current understanding of the biology. Uh, and I'm sorry to disappoint you there on that, Benjamin. Infophysiotherapy asks, how does stress and emotion contribute to pain manifestation at different sites? So I'm not sure if this question is, is referring to the possibility of having pain emerge at two different sites because of stress and emotion, or whether it's a question about how does stress and emotion affect uh, pain in multiple sites. So 
if I think about what I think stress is, uh, I think stress is, is what happens in any system uh, when the capacity to meet the demand is, is uh, getting pushed. The feeling of stress, of being stressed, of being anxious, I think that the feeling, the feeling itself is at the, is at the end game of a processing chain. Uh, and I would put pain at the end game of a processing chain and fatigue, the feelings of those things. The, and in that sense, I think that they modulate things like pain through an indirect circuit. Because when you're anxious, you behave differently and that different behavior may affect nociceptive input or other inputs. But the physiology that underpins stress and other emotions for example, a change in pituitary axis, a change in autonomic regulation, in endocrine regulation. They, the molecules that those systems use to effect their response also activate sensitized nociceptors, change the synaptic efficacy in nociceptive pathways, and also modulate brain cells that are also contributing to pain. So there are multiple mechanisms by which different stresses and different emotions will also involve changes in pain. Sometimes it can be inhibitory. If you are totally stressed, yesterday I had, a, I had to dig really deep on the bike, really deep. I was close to redlining for about four hours and with 50 kilometers to go, I was, I was unsure I was going to make it. I had to dig very deep and that started to become distressing for me. And in hindsight, the, the distress or the stress of that was the winner out of my brain. My wrist, which has been sore for a few days, stopped hurting in, in retrospect. I didn't really have much burn in my legs. There was another thing, a whole body survival thing. So it's not that those stresses and, and negative emotions always facilitate pain. Uh, it's all about influence inside the brain. And if, I think if, if whatever influence is consistent with needing to protect a painful body part or multiple painful body parts, then those body parts will be more painful when that cue is present. Sarah Ellsbury. Sarah asks, mindfulness, how can it be used to work with people's pain management and perception? Uh, I think it can. Uh, but I'm not the guy to answer that question. Uh, I can just tell you my understanding of the evidence is that some mindfulness techniques offer pain relief in the moment uh, and may offer some sustained benefit uh, on pain and disability outcomes. The way that mindfulness works is yet to be unraveled, I think, from a pain perspective, biologically. Candidate mechanisms are a, a reduction in uh, HPA axis, uh, so you, you have a general uh, toning down of the protective set point. If you want to learn about protective set point, go to Explain Pain Supercharged. Uh, and if you buy that, I get money. So you should do that. So does David Butler. Uh, mindfulness may also work by reinstating normal intracortical inhibitory mechanisms. Uh, and when we lose them, we, we think that the loss of normal intracortical inhibition normally in, in increases pain. So mindfulness may, particularly mindfulness focusing on bodily parts, may very well address that a little bit. 
but I think the evidence also says that mindfulness training uh, is going to be far less successful if people don't understand why it's a sensible thing to do. Uh, and I would say that for all psychological therapies for pain, that unless people realise that the, the biological reality is that psychological strategies that we all have can turn pain up or down, can make things better or worse. If people don't realise that, the idea of doing mindfulness is daft to me, I think, and, and our data suggests it's daft to any, anyone in pain, which is why I get so excited about explaining to them the fearful and wonderful complexity of their biology and why psychological therapies are sensible to do with persistent pain. Uh, okay, this is a question from Christian Ling, but really from my dear friend Mick Thacker. Uh, Christian says, I want to hear the answer on a question asked by Mick Thacker. If pain is a perception, then how does the neurophysiology involved go on to, be, to become a higher centre cognitive function? Uh, I don't really know how to answer that question, which is not unusual for something from Mick because Mick lives at a higher plane to the rest of us with his cognitive processing. But if I have a stab at what I think this means, and we're going to reword it, if pain is a perception, how does it become a higher centre cognitive function? Because it, if it's a perception, it must involve neurophysiology, I presume we would say that. Uh, I always get tangled up in the use of, of words like perception and sensation because they mean different things in different communities. So I'm going to change the question again to, if pain is a feeling, uh, how does it become a higher centre cognitive function? And on my third attempt, I can't answer it. But let me think about it. I, I, I'm not sure that it is a higher centre cognitive function. I think the question is making an assumption that's not verified. So I reject the question. I, or maybe the first question is, is pain a higher cognitive function? And what other higher cognitive functions do we have? I presume we have metacognition is a higher cognitive function or uh, arithmetic. Pain is fundamentally different to those things. I would say that pain is better classified as a survival feeling. I get hammered a bit for using feeling and the definition of pain, uh, but that's what it really feels like. But if I was to categorise pain with uh, hunger, which is what Pat Wall suggested to me a long time ago, <clears throat> and I know Mick is, has, uh, has had a lot to do with Pat Wall and will understand that. First, uh, maybe lust, but that's a bit different. Air hunger, so that sense of breathlessness that, that we get. Pain, itch. I don't think they're, they're higher centre cognitive functions. So I'm going to change it a fourth time. If pain is a feeling, then how does the neurophysiology become a feeling? And that's, I don't know. I have no idea how anything that we feel or how the brain produces anything. And I know people are working on models for that. And I'm, I guess I'm in an active process of working on my own model for that, but I, I don't know how it works. And when we solve that, when we solve 
how consciousness emerges, then it's, that's going to be bigger than discovering DNA, I reckon. And maybe we'll never get there. I don't know. I think we probably will. But I think it'll be a whole new way of thinking that we don't recognise at the moment, beyond my lifetime and certainly beyond my capacity to generate it. But I love the question. Thanks, uh, Christian, for bringing Mick's typically uh, penetrative question to my attention. Okay, so Derek has a... Derek Powell, this is quite a long question, but it's a goodie. Uh, he says, children who fall over in the playground experience a broad range of responses from their parents, ranging from a toughen up type of indifference right through to overt and excessive concern. How might these parental responses, among others within a family, shape a developing child's ongoing pain experience that might persist into adulthood? Great question. I'm not the best person to answer that one. There are people studying how parental responses to children's pain uh, affect subsequent pain experiences. Uh, the people I, I think are involved in that are Dr. Melanie Noel, uh, who's in Calgary. Uh, I think that um, Christine Chambers, there are others. Anyway, look those people up. From my perspective as someone who tries to understand uh, how the brain does stuff, uh, how neural networks form, what are the principles that determine the ultimate output of, of a series of neural networks. Uh, I would say the impact of a parent's response to, to my injury, if I'm the child, will be highly informative and will be highly influential on, on what my brain produces. And I, I've got a great experience as a parent I came home from work one day, I was, I was living and working in England uh, and on the three days of summer we had one year, I came home and, and my son Henry saw me coming and ran, Dad, Dad's home from, from work and it was, he would have been two and a half, maybe three years old and someone had moved a table into the corridor and Henry ran straight into the table and hit it full bore. His legs went out in front of him and he fell on his backside and then he was sitting there and I could see the lump growing on his forehead and I'm a pain scientist. So I didn't want to give him any cues. So I just sat and stared at him like this. And Henry was looking at me and his facial expression suggested he was thinking, what's wrong with dad? And then he kept running and we played, kicked a ball around in the backyard for a while. And he showed no sign that he was in pain. Meanwhile, his sister and my wife are on the couch and, and clearly concerned and, and upset about what had happened to Henry. So it wasn't a trivial event. Now, I'm not saying we should not give any feedback uh, to children when they're injured because I think that's how they learn. It'd be very interesting to know what sort of uh, responses children who have, I mean, it would be, you'd never do this study, but children who have been denied all social contact have as adults, well, what's, what's their response to a noxious trigger? And I would imagine it would be a, a, real, a questionably appropriate one 
might be massive, it might be very small, I don't know, but social learning, I think, is critical in pain, absolutely critical. So yeah, as parents, we will have an effect, I think, on uh, the, the pain system of our children. We're just one effect on it, uh, but we do have an effect. And the last question I've got here is from Genghis To or Tho, sorry for mispronouncing that. Medicinal marijuana for pain. Have, have any of you <laughs> uh, studied cannabinoid receptor anatomy and physiology or anandamide physiology and their role in pain? That's an easy one to answer. No. Uh, but I'd love to offer another uh, reflection on medicinal marijuana from the perspective of an Australian, where medicinal marijuana has just, uh, I think it's just been legalized. It has, it's certainly in, in my state. And I think it's really intriguing. It's, a, it, it's almost a case of political cannabis rather than medicinal cannabis. We just don't have the data to support introduction of, of this, in my view. Uh, but it's coming in and it's very fashionable uh, and I really hope that we don't realise in 10 years that it's opioids too or something like that. So that's a little political perspective that I have. Uh, the, the fact that we've got no idea what doses people are giving themselves according to method of, of giving it, preparation or temperature it's at, whether it's in a cookie or it's uh, smoked, these things, we've got no idea of the dose. We've got no idea of, of how quickly it's processed in the body. So we can't be prescribing these things with any accuracy. And I think that's a potentially dangerous situation. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't have it, I'm just saying we, we need to understand it better before everyone starts using it for medicinal purposes. That's my little political soapbox rave. Thanks. A special thanks to Trust Me, I'm a Physiotherapist, Physio Tutors, Rethinking Physiotherapy, Get PT First, Info Physiotherapy, and Exploring Pain Science for contributing their questions. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes.